independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you. And we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though. So if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take Take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed, share the show or written us a five-star review. All this helps so much and we are so grateful. Thank you. I was thinking about the way that our dwellings become a metaphor for our psyche. You know, we sort of say... The eyes are the windows to the soul, right? We, we have this languaging around a house being a framework for how we think about ourselves. And, you know, if we look at other kinds of dwelling structures in other places, they're much more permeable between the inside and outside. And so there's a question for me about what does it mean to kind of open up, to allow to become more permeable these boundaries between things? We're speaking in this episode with Gabriel Cram, a connection phenomenologist, the convener of Restorative Practices Alliance, and the co-founder of the Academy of Applied Social Medicine. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's an honor to have you. Thank you, Camille. It's an honor to be here with you as well. Of course. So the immediate thing that stands out to me is your role as a connection phenomenologist. And this is the first time I've heard of this term, to be honest. So I'm curious to get a glimpse into your background in the various fields that led you to ultimately embody this role. And also just an introduction to what connection phenomenology is all about. Sure. I'm aware that probably for many of your listeners, it would be the first time they're encountering this term. And, you know, I'll say it was a term that I learned about three years ago from a nature awareness mentor. And it was the first time for myself at that moment that I'd heard the term. And what it, I believe, means, what it speaks into is this study of the art and science of connection. And I remember in the moment of hearing the term, I thought, oh, I've been working for 20, at that point, it was maybe 23 years in six disciplinary areas. My formal training at university was in neuroscience, and um, I left university and became very interested in mindful awareness. And then as that work developed, became very interested in trauma healing. As that work developed, became very interested in both social justice and deep nature connection and indigenous lifeways, and then became very interested in the language that we use to describe our experience, partly because I feel often that English is... uh, 
a very technical language and not a very useful map for speaking about things that are internal or relational. And so I remember hearing this word connection phenomenology and realizing, oh, that's actually a description of what I've been attempting to do through these disciplinary areas for 20 something years is to weave together a story of how do we connect with ourselves? How do we connect with others? How do we connect with the living world? Or perhaps I should say reconnect. And then how do we remove the things that get in the way? So it was kind of a dawning recognition for me at that moment. Oh, yeah, that is what I've been doing. I was never able to find a university or a program of study that put all of those things together. So by that point, three years ago, I had compiled a group of probably 30 mentors in 20 disciplines of well-being and realized, okay, this is kind of what we're, what we're up to, what we're about. And we've really thought about it often through this lens of, of healing. We often come in through a lens of looking at improving well-being in individuals, communities, and, and living systems. So mm. that's a preliminary answer to your question. Yeah. And in regards to your personal learning and transformation, I know you went to Stanford and Yale universities, which are well known as elite formal educational institutions. But you say that you've learned more sitting in teepees and circles than in classrooms, learning from mentors from many different cultures around the world. So what was it about formal institutions that made you feel limited to an extent? And having studied with various scholars and teachers across different cultures, what has it shown you in regards to how our dominant society might privilege certain ways of knowing and knowledge over other senses that have been marginalized and overlooked? That's a great question, and I think it really gets towards the heart of our conversation. So I had a fairly unusual experience growing up for a white person. I am of ancestrally Jewish origin, but I, 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 was, I grew up here in the United States, when I was very little, I lived in a community that was, I guess, an intentional community. My parents were young people at Wesleyan University in the late 60s. They moved to a little town in New Hampshire when I was very young. And they had a community of, of friends who that was very deeply interconnected. You know, So I grew up with what I much, much later learned was called Allo Mothering, a second mother. Basically, my best friend and I have known each other literally since he was born. We're two months apart. I had this experience for the first seven years of my life of being part of this tribe, really. And then in 1982, the economy collapsed. My dad lost his job and my parents moved back to suburban St. Louis, which is where both of them were from. And I got ripped out of this, you know, really deep matrix of connection. And at some level, I think the story of my, my life and my work has been about finding my way back home. And at a kind of individual level, I think the way that I dealt in part with that trauma of being ripped out of my place and my community was by going into my thinking. So I spent a lot of my early years, my middle and high school uh, years and early university in cognition. And, um, you know, I was able to excel in thinking, I guess you could say, enough to, to be accepted into Yale University. I got there and, and I realized because I had many friends there who were very passionate about the the things they were pursuing, I realized I couldn't feel my own heart. And it was at that point that I, that I dropped out, that I left. And so I think the first piece of your question, you know, I then embarked on a 25-year journey that's really been about reclaiming my connection to myself and to place and to others. 
And I found that a lot of the things that helped me the most were not ever touched upon in the pedagogy of the, the academic contexts where I was when I was younger. And, you know, I could relate very specific moments of having the un perhaps deserved good fortune of sitting in a teepee ceremony for the first time. You know, the kind of learnings that I think touch us in the most deeply human ways are generally not often classroom learnings. And I think, again, and we'll expand into this question because I think it's a really big question, but I would propose to your listeners, and and many of them may, may see this already, that, you know, a lot of the modes of knowing that are privileged in this culture are domination modes. They're modes of domination. They're power over, not power with. They emerge from and uh, co-extant with impulses to hierarchy and control and power. And those are not the modes of relationality that bring us into reciprocal relationship with anything, really. And I think we're at this moment in the history of modern civilization, so-called, when the, the limits of this destructive and power over this hierarchizing impulse are really clear in the breakdown of the environment that we've caused as modernity, these modes of oppression, this uh, disconnection from our embodied experience, these are all modes that give birth to, they, they engender death, not life. And so part of, I think, our ongoing quest and inquiry is how do we uplift the ways of knowing that bring us into real relationships? And One of the profound wellsprings of that kind of knowledge, which is an embodied awareness and a wisdom, is to turn towards Aboriginal cultures and turn toward more traditional and ancestral cultures that have, for hundreds of thousands, some of them years, been working in relationship with all that is. And so part of my learning has been an active unlearning of uh, a lot of the things I was taught in school, the narratives that were handed down that I, as a young person, just received because that was what was being told to me, but that turned out to not have been true. Mm. This conversation is really giving me flashbacks with a lot of our amazing recent conversations, for example, the one with Daniel Lim, where he spoke about the differences between liberatory power, which is power with, as you mentioned, as opposed to supremacist power, which is what our dominant culture recognizes and values, which is power over. And also, as we talk about education, what it also reminds me of is this episode that just aired today as we speak, uh, late June, with Dr. Mark Rifkin, where we talk about kinship organizing as a way of uh, native governance. So it's an idea of governance that the family is not separated from how you organize yourselves socially, but in this dominant Western society that we're in, government is only recognized as something that is outside on top of and external that really separates the binary of the private life, which is with your nuclear family, and the public life, which is governed by this separate formal institution. So this is also parallel to education in that education in this system is really only valued when it comes from this outside external formal institution, rather than really recognizing that there's so much value in the learning that we can receive in our day-to-day lives that are integrated into our communities. So just a parallel there that is really interesting to note. 
Yeah, I love what you're saying. It's very dimensionally rich. It evokes in me a couple of levels of response. One of them, you know, I was thinking about the origin recently of private property, the, the conception of property, you know, as it were, which emerges, you know, in the European narrative sometime between, I don't know, 11 and 1400 in the UK, in Great Britain, with the enclosure of common lands, right? Where you start to see this impulse to take what was the commons that which belonged to everyone, and there's an impulse to enclosure and to saying, no, this is mine, and, and, and constraining a space. And I was thinking about that in terms of how we build houses, actually. And I'm going to link together some things here that are maybe unorthodox, but uh, we have the good fortune right now to be stewarding an eco-reserve. And so I'm spending a lot of time in the forest, and I was out there thinking about why do we build houses? So here in Northern California, you know, 10 months of the year, I would say with the exception at the present time of, you know, some of the winter where it's cold and wet, and then the wildfire season, you can pretty much live outside. And so why do we build these structures that segregate the inside from the outside? Why is that our habit of building? And I was thinking about the way that our dwellings become a metaphor for our psyche. You know, we sort of say the eyes are the windows to the soul, right? We, we have this languaging around a house being a framework for how we think about ourselves. And, you know, if we look at other kinds of dwelling structures in other places, they're much more permeable between the inside and outside. And so there's a question for me about what does it mean to kind of open up, to allow to become more permeable, these boundaries between things? And as you're pointing out, one of the things about this European, this Western framing is that it's very much a hierarchizing impulse, right? Power over, separation of the personal from the, the governance, the familial from the sphere of governance. And I think if we look at these other models that are more based in the circle, more based in processes of life, we see that within those frameworks, there's a relationality. And that, you know, these areas really do influence each other. And I think it's also important in our conversation about wellness, because you see that same kind of segregating impulse in Western medicine and mental health, where, as our mentor Mary Watkins says, it decontextualizes suffering out of the context of community and ecology. And it, you know, kind of focuses on this individual experience without regard to the fact that our lived experiences within the context of community and within the context of you know, hopefully the living world. Really powerful. And as you spoke to how we look at or how we've built houses, what comes to mind is that our conceptions of security in the dominant society is to put up walls. So if you look at people that are really wealthy financially, they'll put up a lot of walls and gates to in a sense, like isolate themselves even further. But of course, that is understandable given how our society is currently designed. So I almost wonder if security shouldn't be about putting up walls to further disconnection, but security really should be about building greater relationships with community so that we can, you know, as social creatures, we watch out for each other and we take care of each other. So it's really about opening doors and fostering deeper connections rather than putting up walls to drive further disconnection. I feel like what you're saying is really, really important. And um, I want to bring in some of the words of one of our mentors. His name is Dr. Stephen Porges. In our work, he's the, the head of neurophysiology. He developed a body of work called the polyvagal theory, 
which I would propose to your listeners, is on the cusp of revolutionizing medicine and mental health, and will do so over the next couple of decades. I want to kind of introduce a, a little bit of a conceptual framework here, and starting with this observation that you've made that the more affluent people are, the more they tend to think of security in terms of putting up barriers and walls. And, you know, we see like this trope in the United States of the gated community is, I think, a, a very strong example of that. Dr. Portis says something very interesting that I think is really important to, to what you're speaking into, which is that the absence of threat is not the same as a felt sense of safety. You know, keeping a threat out is not the same as feeling safe at all, right? And our conception of, you know, security is very much about trying to keep a threat away, which is actually very different at a physiological, at an embodied level from feeling safe. You can keep threats out all day long and still not feel safe at all. And I think this is an important theme for us to stand in because when we think about well-being, we think about this connection phenomenology framework and tying it to relationships and well-being, you know, there's a conversation that's happening, I think, in the United States and in many places about trauma. There's more and more awareness of the degree to which modern people are traumatized. And I would say that, you know, within that, even now our maps of trauma are very inadequate because they don't include yet in the formal diagnostic categories, they don't include social traumas, such as, you know, racism, sexism, discrimination around gender, gender orientation, any of those social traumas. They also don't even conceptualize alienation from the living world because the baseline of modern civilization is alienated from the living world. So that just seems normal. But even within that framing of trauma in an expanded way, that's still not the same as turning on connection. That's still not the same as finding our resources of relationship, of connection with one another, within community, and with the living world. And I will propose to you again, as the um, circumstances of humanity's moment become more intensified on the planet, we will find, I think, more and more that our wealth is in our relationships. This is really as it has been in the past, and it's always probably been that way. But if there is, you know, heaven forbid, a wildfire, it doesn't matter how expensive my house is or how high the gates are, I need help, you know. And what we haven't as a civilization understood very well is that help is developed reciprocally through, you know, trust and relationship. And uh, this brings us, I think, a little bit back to this Aboriginal frame where great wealth in more traditional societies had to do with what you give away, you know, had to do with the quality of relationships and who you're taking care of. Mm. One of the most powerful elements of your work for me, which is very much part of the greater public health ecosystem, is that it situates itself within a historical context of colonization and sees that recognition as critical to healing, not just for historically harmed peoples, but also people whose ancestors may have been the ones carrying out the acts of colonizing and genocide. So how might this awareness and recognition help us to better understand our senses of disconnection today, especially from others and the living world, and how this might really be rooted in earlier collective displacements of cultures? When I think about our work, I think about it as a culture repair engine in part, because its purpose is to reweave fabrics of connection. And then within that, there's a multicultural component to it, which is how do you weave fabrics of connection across culture and across the harms that have been done, which are differential harms, right? 
there's a harm that was perpetrated by colonizing people. There are harms that are perpetrated, you know, it's not always monodirectional, but often by men through the patriarchal structures. There are harms of white supremacy. And there's a, there's a certain kind of work that I believe we do together across lines of difference that's very, very important to that reweaving. And then I think there are also, and I, in our work, you know, we have different working groups that are focused on these kind of respective areas of culture-specific restorative practices for different communities, right? And so what I would propose to you at one level is that um, the kind of harms that exist in the psyches of white people who are unaware of the degree to which they're perpetrating violence against others and themselves, those are different harms than the harms perpetrated upon I would distinguish also in in this culture, in the United States specifically, between African-American communities that were enslaved, indigenous communities, you know, these different communities that have immigrated some, assimilated some, you know, we're dealing with these different xenophobic facets of white supremacy. So I think there are different harms in different communities. And so I don't want to aggregate them and say, you know, there's one kind of set of tools or practices. But I think the the deeper conversation that you're pointing at is connected to what Mary Watkins is saying, which is that there's a historicity to all of these things. There's a historicity of disconnection in the European project, which is a colonial project, right? My family uh, was, you know, uprooted for political reasons from Poland about 100 years ago. They were Jews. They emigrated to St. Louis. and they came and established, you know, some degree of rootedness there. But because they were Jews and because they were white appearing but culturally different, at some point they learned to crack the assimilation code of the United States, which involved divesting from their language and cultures of origin. So Yiddish was lost in my family. Um, And it was so lost in my family that I didn't even know until I was in my 30s that my, my lineage had spoken Yiddish. Right? They, I don't want to say, I want to say that they assimilated and the assimilation narrative in the United States is a narrative of accommodation to whiteness. And so part of my own healing has been to begin to reclaim that awareness and that connection. And I, just speaking as a Jewish person, also internalized a fair amount of anti-Semitism when I was young without doing it consciously whatsoever. And, you know, I'm just giving a little bit of example from my own, my own experience. And so... I will say also that my own healing, my own wellness as a white person uh, became very connected to doing anti-racist work. And I didn't set out to do anti-racist work for my own well-being that I was aware of. I was asked to work with African-American high school students in a school in Oakland in probably 2016. And when I confronted myself, I had to grapple with a question about what I would possibly have to offer them that would be of value given my own lack of awareness about my own whiteness. And it brought me to this this point of studying with a gentleman named Le Munois, who is a mindfulness and diversity trainer based in Berkeley, California, um, an extraordinarily masterful teacher in many ways. And the interesting thing about that for me was that I recovered huge parts of my own soul 
through that process. You know, and I, I don't want to say that white folks should do anti-racist work to help themselves because we should all be doing anti-racist work because it's necessary and it's ethically correct. But it contributed to my own well-being because in order to do that work, I had to dismantle the dissociative impulses that I had been trained into by the dominant culture. You know, we're socialized, I will say white folks, socialized into a certain kind of dissociative trance. And it was only when that was confronted that it began to be evoked in me, and then I had to, to deal with it. And, and that process was an extraordinarily growthful process. It wasn't easy. I was very frightened, actually. And uh, it brought up a lot of things in myself that I didn't want to look at, you know, because they were very un unappealing. But the result of that, I don't want to say the end result, because I think it's an ongoing process, but I don't think I'll ever finish it was that it brought me back into places in my own heart that I had been trained out of. And so I can only speak as, as a white person into this question, but there, that was never on my map for healing. Nobody ever said to me, Gabriel, if you want to be mentally healthy, you need to do anti-racist work. And yet I believe pretty firmly at this point that that's absolutely true. And something else while on the subject of wellness and healing is that you share that inequities of safety should be viewed as a public health issue and as a human rights issue. And I think people often conceptualize things like wellness, healing, safety, threat, violence, and security, as we mentioned earlier, in very individualistic and direct ways, which is important, but fixating on that alone can allow for a dismissal of systemic forms of safety and security and also the historical context as well. So while most of what your collective teaches are restorative practices that individuals can engage with, I wonder what you feel about their limitations in the face of more systemic threats of deprivation and how you see individual healing being tied to collective transformations. I love your question. I really appreciate that question because I think it's it's spot on. So let me um, let me respond to the first part of that, and then I'll I'll respond into the second part. So why do we say that inequities of safety are both unacknowledged and undergirding these other forms of structural oppression? And part of our lens on wellness, and you know, part of our project is to facilitate, catalyze the development of an integrated mind-body medicine that centralizes autonomic physiology, which is really the study of the stress response and the stress physiology at the center of, of, of medicine. Part of what's happened in modern allopathic medicine is that the system emerged from a mind-body split, and therefore it segregates, and I'm using that word with a degree of consciousness, it's, it segregates the treatment of the body 
from the treatment of the mind. And it says if it's a body problem, you go and you see one of, uh, you know, an increasingly specialized set of practitioners, right? And if it's a, an emotional or mental problem, you go see mental health, psychiatry, that's different from the body. And yet, ironically, four out of five visits to primary care in the United States are stress-related. And any issue that's stress-related is an issue of dysregulation of the autonomic physiology. So part of what that means is that if we want to understand well-being, we have to look very deeply at stress. And within this awareness of stress and within this work of the polyvagal theory, Dr. Stephen Porges, he brings, comes clarifying a, a term that he coined, and the term is neuroception. And neuroception is the moment-to-moment -moment felt embodied detection of safety or threat, right? And he points out that it's a background process that's happening all the time in our awareness. It's not a perception. It's not a, a cognition. It's an embodied moment-to-moment -moment detection of safety or threat. When our bodies feel safe, and it's not something that we can cognitively generally tell them to do, they have to self-assess safety. It provides us this opportunity to turn on what we call the connection system, which I would propose to, to you and your listeners is really the, the foundation of well-being. And most ancestral and traditional cultures really bringing that system online and stabilizing it has been the goal of both child-rearing practices and the kind of culture at large. When we don't feel safe in the moment, our physiology surfaces different kinds of threat platforms. And Dr. Porges explains there's the fight or flight platform. These are like high energy stress responses. There's a platform that's a dorsal vagal, like a shutting down kind of immobilizing platform, right? There are these different kind of modes of, of defensive response. And I think when we kind of, you know, include this social lens, and I think you're seeing more of this in, through the, the language of social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences, this study by Dr. Vincent Fleety. Here in California, we have the, the great good fortune to have Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris as the first Surgeon General, and it's a lens that's, you know, really important to her, her work as well. But you have this realization that a felt sense of safety is, in fact, a prerequisite for well-being. And what our civilization has managed to do is it's structurally deprived entire groups of a felt sense of safety, right? So if I'm, you know, in a neighborhood where I'm afraid that if I walk out my door, I might get shot, it's, it's very difficult for me to experience the, the drivers of safety and connection required to be well. And I'm using that. That's an extreme example. But I will say, if I am a person of color and I walk out the door in a white supremacist society, that same danger exists. One of the, I think, tremendous potential benefits of the pandemic, and I want to be careful about how I say this, because it, again, it's, it's been a very painful experience for, for many humans and, and for many of us. But one of the benefits for those who would listen to this is that that experience of walking out your door and feeling like you might be in danger we have a colleague who said to me, um, she's a, an African-American woman, she said, if you think that walking out my door and feeling unsafe arrived with a pandemic, you haven't been paying attention, right? So this is not a novel experience. And we can see the, the extremely detrimental effects that a year of having that experience has had on the mental health of human beings at large. So what does it mean that we're in a society that allows people at a, at a systematic level to be deprived of that safety. And that's why we say it's, a, I think it's a human rights violation. In fact, it's a public health emergency and a human rights violation. 
So that was the first part of the answer to your question. I think the second part is just a lot of what your collective teaches are restorative practices that individuals can engage with. So I wonder what their limitations are when we do have these systemic threats of deprivation and how you see individual healing being tied to collective transformations. We had this experience that was a little bit strange with the advent of COVID because we developed like a, an online learning platform. And then we had this moment where it was like, are we really going to have people come and learn about connection in isolation on their screens? Like that just seemed so fundamentally counter to our our impulses here. So, you know, our work evolved in a circle in the forest, basically, with a group of people, multicultural group of people sitting in a circle. And so I think it's always really been about community. It's been about this collective. And part of the restorative practices as a term, the reason that we settled on that language was because, you know, initially we were doing these this kind of work that was being categorized as self-care. And we were saying, well, listen, the the biological reality is that humans don't really do self-care. You know, our ability to take care of ourselves and even be able to track ourselves, again, at a physiological level, has to do in part with us having been attended to when we were infants. We were cared for, and that's what allowed us to develop an ability to care for ourselves. And so what do you call that? You know, is that co-care? Is it community care? It's reciprocal. You know, there's there's a mutuality to it, right? We're not really doing this stuff alone. And so... Yes, there's some level at which a lot of the practices that we describe fall into the category of being things one can do by oneself. But part of the genesis of our work was realizing that, you know, there are also these practices that are practices of relationship. There are also practices that one would engage in the living world. And we built this kind of map of practices that emerged over seven years of working with about 5,000 different wellness professionals. And it, it sort of revealed itself to us over time. And we saw there were these three legs to the, to the stool, if you, if you wish to use that analogy. Self-practices, things one does by oneself, things one does in community with others, things one does in the living world. And there are also these overlaps where you have all three of those. A campfire is a pretty good example of something where you have individuals in community in the living world, right? Mm. And... Um, you know, I think our some of the edges of our thinking, you know, at this point are around communities of practice and also how we work with other kinds of liberation movements. And I'm not yet at liberty to say, but we're getting ready to announce a partnership with an organization that's based in the UK that is, uh, you know, a global ecological movement that's really focused on this kind of community level of, you know, repair and systems transformation. I want to go back to this felt sense of safety, because I think there's both the felt sense of safety that's rooted in reality and circumstances, and there's also the felt sense of safety that is more so rooted in the stories that we tell ourselves or have been taught. So the dominant Western society tends to uphold this sense of individualism with a narrow purview of the self. And this is also reflected in how many conceptualize individual freedom as being separate from collective liberation, which is more so rooted in an understanding of connection. But I think about whether the individualistic culture might just be a manifestation or reflection of a deeper culture of fear and lack of connection. So in other words, because being in a state of fear and insecurity activates our fight, flight, shut down behaviors and mindsets, many people being kept in perpetual states of fear or having been indoctrinated to hold worldviews of scarcity and insecurity 
that might actually drive more individualistic thinking, ideologies, and behavior that in reality then will lead to further disconnection. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> I think what you just said is correct, Kamal. Yeah, so I, I, I tend to subscribe to this bottom-up rather than a top-down view of these things. Bottom-up from the physiology. And what, what people who study polyvagal theory would say is that story follows state. And what I think, you know, to complement your words here and deepen into this, this topic, I'll give you kind of an example of something which is uh, like an ambiguous stimulus, right? So I think what I want to convey to your listeners is that in the present moment, the felt detection of safety or threat that's unfolding, it shapes what we call a neural platform which in a way is kind of a, a set of neurological or neurophysiological glasses that you can't take off. And what that platform does is it sort of structures five levels of experience. So it structures how it feels in the body in a given moment, right? Your heart rate, your breathing, you know, muscle tension. It's a physiological structuring, a visceral structuring. I would propose that it structures something that's a little bit more existential, sort of like how we understand ourselves. It structures what we feel and what we're able to think, therefore. It structures how we interpret the world around us, and it structures how we behave. And I'll give your listeners just a kind of example of this. And, you know, there, there are many examples of this, but there's a photograph that we'll sometimes hold up, and it has two men. You know, it could be a father and son. One is, a, one is an adult, one is a child. And the, the larger man has a hand raised. and there's no context for the image, right? It's just a snapshot in time. And one of the things that's interesting about these, these moments of ambiguity is that the way that we interpret that image is very connected to our own lived experiences and our own you know, neural platforms. And so you can ask a, a room full of people what's happening here and end up with a broad variety of different interpretations. You know, someone might be convinced that it's a father and a son, and the father is giving the kid a high five. Someone else might be convinced that the, the child is going to um, receive a blow from the father, right? It's not apparent in the image. It's an ambiguous stimulus, but the, the experience, the shaping of neural platform, it informs the way that we hear, the way that we see, the way that we interpret. And I think this is really important because these things tend to be self-reinforcing. Modernity is premised, as you've pointed out, on a story, and it's a story of scarcity, and it's a story of competition, and it's a story of hierarchy and power, and, you know, it operates through, through fear, right? And when people are afraid, and they're in a neural platform that's a defensive platform, they see threat, right? And, it, and it's self-reinforcing. And so I think part of our work is to help people experience what it feels like to be in a sense of safety. Because when we have that experience at an embodied level, there isn't a need for an other. There isn't a need for something oppositional. Whereas the moment we move into a defensive platform, our physiology bottom up is literally looking for a threat. And it wants to pin that on something, right? It's, a, it's the part of the function of that defensive state is to identify the threat. If we feel safe, there isn't a requirement for that. We can exist in a, in a, in a space of unity. There doesn't have to be an other, 
right? And it gets us into this very deep teaching about the other as self, because what we identify as the other, our indigenous mentors teach us, are those things that we are not in touch with in ourselves. Thank you so much for this. I think all of this really offers an expanded way of understanding how we can address our layered injustices, because I don't know if it's enough to simply tell a person who holds a worldview of scarcity that, you know, you should hold a worldview of abundance. I think that there is a deeper physiological sense that needs to be embodied that will then drive these perspective shifts. So this certainly gives us a lot more to think about. And overall, your body of work at Restorative Practices asks two main questions. How do we turn on, stabilize, and instantiate connection? And how do we remove what gets in the way? Given all of the systemic roadblocks that we have in the present day as we explore today, what are some of your words of guidance for us going forward for how we can better embody connections with ourselves, with people around us, and our greater living world? I had the good fortune to be on a conversation a few days ago with our head of nature and culture. His name is John Stokes. And he's... uh, He's a very interesting person. He was um, he calls himself a, as a white boy from I think Ohio. After uh, attending Princeton, he went to Australia, found himself teaching in an Aboriginal college there, and was subsequently trained and mentored by Aboriginal trackers in Australia, including Uncle Jimmy James, who is an extraordinary tracker. Um, your your audience can can do some research. He's uh, very famous Australian Aboriginal tracker in the 70s. John then came back to the United States and he worked closely with Jake Swamp of the um, Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy in uh, upstate upstate New York. They have a very beautiful, in the Haudenosaunee, they have a very beautiful Thanksgiving prayer that's called the Thanksgiving Address. It's a gratitude. It's a, it's a prayer of acknowledgement and gratitude. And it it speaks to our gratitude for all of the components of the living world. And it's the brilliance of the prayer is, which was brought, you know, by the peacemaker who was a a being who, whose work established the Iroquois Confederacy. It's, it's a prayer that's said before all, all meetings and all gatherings. And, you know, it brings our attention to gratitude to the living world in this ladder-like fashion of moving from the earth herself through the, the various, you know, the plant and animal kingdoms and, and, and up. And, uh, you know, John says that he thinks that gratitude is the, the secret to, to life, you know, thankfulness. He says, say thank you a lot, right? And so within this question, you know, how do we establish connection? How do we bring ourselves into a greater felt sense of safety? Part of it is to identify those things that we're connected to and to really focus on building those things out. And a very, you know, powerful practice for building that sense is to bring ourselves into gratitude. That's one practice. One of the things that we do in our work is to really help people map out their connections. You know, it's a thing that I think, you know, for many people prior to COVID, maybe maybe people weren't weren't fully aware of the degree to which we were being nourished each day by these little micro moments of connection, right? If I go out into the world and I'm standing in line at the grocery store and somebody drops something and I pick it up and they smile at me, I'm being nourished by that connection, right? And we've had a year on planet earth where, you know, most people couldn't see other people's faces. They couldn't be touched. 
And so that nutrient of connection that tends to flow between people when they're open to it was something that most of us didn't experience. And, you know, so we think about how do we fortify? What is it that we're connected to in our lives and how do we nourish that? Because our biology has a tilt toward what's wrong. <laughs> you know, most of us, we're, we're very good at noticing what's not working. And we have a lot less practice really bringing into our attention and holding those things that we find to be nourishing and beneficial and beautiful. And so there's a cultivation of a set of practices around really attending. And, you know, even, you know, for your listeners, just to the, the kind of micro moments of these practices, if I see something that's beautiful to me, just to take a moment and allow myself in a mindful manner to dwell on that beauty. Could be someone helping someone across the road. It could be the beauty of, you know, a single leaf that's curled in the light in a particular way. Could be anything. It's an, there's an infinite number of things that we can experience that sense of beauty and connection with, right? But it also involves, you know, whole categories. You know, are we connected to our sense of ancestry? Do we have a community of others? Do we feel at home in the living world? And then how do we build those connections, right? What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been profound for you? I'm reading recently a book called Donut Economics by Kate Raworth, because we've been trying to wrap our heads around how to develop an economic model in our work that is in accord with small band hunter-gatherer gift economies. And it's the first economics book I've ever read that makes sense to me. Mm. <laughs> so I'll put out a shout for Kate Raworth's book, Donut Economics. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Actually, you know, it's funny that you asked that. I don't have a lot of mental talk with myself. I, I tend to do certain kinds of awareness practices and work at the level of kind of em embodied sensation. And I do a lot of work to stay connected to a, a sense of the sacred in my heart. You know, so it's not really often in words or not primarily, I think I should say in words. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Oh, well, I, I'll say two things about this. I had a really beautiful conversation with Chiokasi Ghost Horse, who if you have the good fortune to interview for your, your podcast, you would, I think, appreciate his, his perspective and wisdom very much. And he's a Lakota activist from the Cheyenne River Lakota people. And he told me a story about being with a Lakota elder named Virgil Killstraight. And the very brief version of the story that he told me was that they were in Auschwitz and Birkenau in 2013. They had gone as a delegation of Zen peacemakers. And when they arrived there, this is the site of the, the concentration camps in Germany. When they arrived there, he felt a desire to create a ceremony. And so 
they spontaneously upheld a Lakota ceremony. And he said that when they were calling in the directions, they were in a field and the creatures, you know, the deer and the rabbits stopped and looked up and listened and the birds stopped singing and he could feel that everything in the living world was listening. And he was aware that this earth-based language was speaking in a way that all of the creatures could hear and understand. And later, Virgil asked him to say something to the other people in Lakota. And he said, he turned to Virgil and he said, is there a word in Lakota for domination? And Virgil said, no word, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm very inspired by this awareness that there are these languages that are languages of relationship and not domination. I'm very inspired to realize that I think the solutions we need, they're here already. They've been here the whole time. We just haven't had the humility to uplift them. And I will say one other thing, which is that I got to participate uh, yesterday in a, in a woman's led healing circle. And again, you know, this uh, one of our indigenous mentors said that until the sacred space of women is acknowledged and reclaimed, we're not going forward, you know? And so I'm very inspired by this uh, uplift of these indigenous voices, of women's voices, and, you know, the, the weave of relationship that's coming out of holding in their proper place these, you know, sacred awarenesses. So, mm. so it's restorativepractices.com to our listeners if you want to learn more about uh, Gabriel's work. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciated this conversation. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Don't give up. We will be victorious. You are listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered show which you can support and co-create with us starting from just $2 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't have any corporate sponsors nor a marketing agency behind us. So if you enjoyed the episode and can help share it with your friends or write a review in the podcast app, that would be so greatly appreciated and help a lot. Today's musical offering is Coming Home by Anna Lee Wilson. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>